Hi and welcome to episode 35 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And I hope you've all had a good week since we last spoke to you. If this is your first Page One Podcast, at the Page One Podcast we like to try and speak to writers of all kinds, authors, comic book writers, screenwriters, video game writers, to try and find out about their writing process, how they broke into the industry and to chat to them about their work. We hope you enjoy this episode and if you do enjoy the episode... It would be great if you could take 10 seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. That really helps us shoot up the rankings and keep getting great guests on the podcast. Just like... Christopher Brookmeyer, who happens to be this week's guest on the podcast, Marco. Yes, indeed. Just in case you weren't aware of that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a great chat we had with Chris. He's an award-winning Scottish crime author. He broke through with his acclaimed first book quite ugly one morning when he was only 26 and we hear how that happened and how that came to be um, and since then he's written numerous crime novels but also he's written in other genres like sci-fi and we chat about some of those sci-fi books like his most recent one was Places in the Darkness which uh, I think we both really enjoyed when we read it. Yeah definitely. Under the name Ambrose Parry he's also co-written a series of historical crime novels set in 19th century Edinburgh with his wife Dr. Marissa Hatesman. Uh, and it was really interesting hearing how that came to be and what their writing process is for that because their writing process was a bit different from other people that we've spoken to who, who co-write with other people, which yeah. I thought was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, the, the way they break down the writing of that is completely different in terms of who writes what aspect of the novel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's a different way that we've seen of a of two people writing a novel together, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and it, de- it definitely works because they're, they're really great books. And we chatted about that and about lots of other stuff with Chris, including how he's a member of the fun-loving crime writers band <laughs> who uh, are regulars on the book festival scene in the UK and I think possibly abroad as well. So that, that's got people like Val McDermott and Mark Billingham, who's a previous guest on the podcast as well. So we chat to him about that and much more. So we'll just get on with the podcast and uh, we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's show. See you then. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously. Get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there, searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy, and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one, 
page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realized you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. You were a journalist, I think, before you became an author. So was writing something that you've always enjoyed since you were a kid? Yeah, um, uh, really from the age of about six. I mean, as soon as I could write sentences and sentences and paragraphs, I was trying to write stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, I think because I'd always um, had stories read to me as a child and then as soon as I could read by myself I would always be in a corner reading and it just seemed like a natural progression to mm-hmm. try and write so it was the kind of thing I just always wanted to do um, I think though as a, as a kid, certainly growing up when I grew up um, it's very different to now where you you can get in touch with the authors that you read almost yep. instantly um, but growing up then you know, I think you've got the impression that authors and people in the arts in general were like aliens that just exhibited in a, or existed on a completely different plane. Yeah. So it wasn't as if he thought it was a realistic ambition. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, I, would, I would tell myself now, tell people that was my ambition, but ambition and uh, vocation were very different things. So, I mean, I, I grew up thinking I'd like to write books, but never really been convinced how viable that was. And so you you got into journalism, and then were you were you writing fiction at that time as well? Were you, was that always something you were doing in the background? Yeah, um, I mean, when I say say journalism, uh, I was I worked as a sub editor, right? Okay, for for um, Screen International, which is a cinema trade paper, uh, and I, when I was a student and I was um, involved in sort of student newspapers, it was the the production side of things that actually appealed to me then. I think I, I really, it was the early days of desktop publishing, mm-hmm. of, of people using Quark Express, and that was appealed to me. I liked the, the layout side of it, I liked um, sort of page design and typography. Uh, so I was actually driven more to that side, the production side of it, rather than ever wanting to be a reporter. So there was, to me, I suppose there was a distinction between um, at, at work, I was mostly rewriting other people's copy. And uh, at home was um, when I would write fiction. But I always wanted to write fiction, and I did tend to write fiction as a, a kind of um, recreational pursuit, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I never I never went down the short story path. I know a lot of writers, um, they start writing short stories and, and sort of graduate in terms of length. I never really was a fan of the short story as a reader. Mm-hmm. I, I always liked a, a, a novel. So I just started writing novels rather than doing it in stages. So I would do that. I was working in London at the time um, at, at Screen International and I would write in my spare time. Um, 
weekends and evenings and my wife was on call a lot. She would be when I say on call actually she was just in the hospital for sometimes whole weekends. So um, there was plenty of time to spare to, to go on with it. But what I did find was that writing in these wee dribs and drabs, you know, writing in, in those weekends and evenings, you could get something done, but it didn't. It, it was kind of unsatisfactory, you know, you had to keep kind of disengaging from it. And when I, I got the impression that it was something you had to commit to, mm-hmm. um, so that you could be doing nothing but that for days at a time. And I remember, like, I think I had a lot of time in Lou after working at a film market, and I spent an awful lot of days consecutively writing, and, and the results of it, the effects of it, were completely different to what I would normally produce, and I realised that's how it had to be. So um, I moved up to Edinburgh, then I worked freelance for the Evening News Sports Desk and for the Scotsman, um, their kind of weekend supplement. And because I was freelance, I was able to take time off. Um, I, I worked out I could afford to take two months just uh, of, of time to write novels. And um, so for a couple of years, that's what I did. I would spend two months in the spring um, just writing a novel. And that's how I wrote Quite Ugly One Morning. It was, oh, wow. one, of the, it was one of the reasons the novel was so... Uh, tight, you know, so yeah. it's about 85,000 words because I had eight weeks, and you know you can't <laughs> you can't spend too long um, describing the scenery. You know, uh, you've just got to get the story told. And so, how how did that? How did you manage to um, you know break through with that? What, what was the process there? How did you find your agent and things like that? Um, well, actually, I wrote four novels before I got one published. So, quite early one morning was my fourth attempt. Mm-hmm. And you know, they talk about being break ready. I think that was the, the thing. I was I was break ready in as much as I got my break when it was novel number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was serendipitous because I, when I'd submitted the previous novels, um, obviously I, I was disappointed that nobody wanted to publish them. But at the same time, I wasn't particularly surprised because I wasn't particularly happy with them myself and I couldn't have told you what it was um, I think it took me a while to realise what it was was I wasn't writing something that really fitted my, my own narrative voice uh, I was trying to write what I thought publishers would publish so for one thing I was writing stuff that was very serious mm-hmm. and it hadn't really occurred to me to try and be irreverent and, and humorous in my, my, my fiction so quite a good morning, I just kind of wrote largely for my own amusement. And that's when I felt like I was writing something that it flowed better. And, and weirdly, when I submitted that, I didn't feel, I wasn't thinking, oh, I've cracked it here. It was more like I, I really didn't care. You know, I was happy yeah. enough to have written it. I was quite keen to show it to friends in a way that I wasn't with my previous mm-hmm. work, mainly because I wanted to see what they made of the humour or what they made of some of the, the situations. But the... the, the the break I got was um, at the time when I was working at the, the Scotsman, um, I was usually subbing the, the film reviews and the, the film reviewer, Angus Wolf Murray, we got talking because I'd been working for Screen and um, he got me to stand in as the film reviewer when he was on holiday. And then I told him I'd written this novel and he said, well, my cousin's an agent so I can get her to look at it. Um, but he made it clear that, that there was no guarantees that she would want to represent me, but he could at least get us to look at it. He did also, and she only took on about three new clients a year. So <laughs> um, it was 
and, and, that, and it, one of our more high-profile clients at the time was Nick Hornby. You know, so I thought this is oh, wow. <laughs> this is a you know it's a foot in the door, but it's, it's no more than that. But actually, um, she took me on as a client, and I thought at that point um, I was imagining something would happen maybe in about six months. But actually, within about a fortnight of her taking me on, I, uh, I had a deal. Wow. Uh, because the difference was that obviously I, an agent has got a relationship with several editors. Um, those editors will read what what that agent submits. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if, if if it's a select submission, you know, it's not someone who's spamming out manuscripts yeah. to everybody. And uh, a good agent in that respect also knows which editors will be receptive to which particular type of novel. So she um, had a an auction going for the book um, and I got a two book deal with Little Brown that was the summer of 1995 mm-hmm. it was 20, 25 years ago this summer <laughs> that's amazing well, and it's quite interesting how, how you're saying that the, the your fourth book the one that really managed to break through was it was the book that you said and I should, I'm just going to write what I would want to read or what kind of my own type of book rather than the book that I think other people want to read because I think your early work's very humorous satirical and stuff and I think you're your more recent stuff's kind of, I don't know what the word for it is, mature is the wrong word, but it's kind of, it's its less in, kind of over-the-top, overt humour. And mm-hmm. I wonder is that because you're, is that a, a, t- a change in your own taste as well then? I think it, it's um, a kind of natural progression. You know, for, uh, if I'm being flippant about it, I always say that the difference is that um, I don't know everything anymore. <laughs> you know, when, when you're sort of, I was 26 when I wrote Quite Ugly One Morning and you are kind of, you're, you're, you're sort of full of, of opinions at that age um, and you're you're less, I suppose, a wee bit less analytical and I'm, I'm quite envious of that writer now mm-hmm. because um, back then I would have a, a sort of crazy idea and just run with it uh, and take it into really surreal places whereas now if I had the same idea I, I might try to think about how I would render it in a, a more realistic way and start thinking through the, the psychological implications for, for characters and what have you and I would end up not writing a book like that Yeah. so uh, it was more a, a change in me but also I think after I wrote maybe like 13 novels that I would have described as kind of irreverent and humorous um, and towards the end of that was kind of an apotheosis for me, it was a, a snowball in hell I was particularly proud of that book mm-hmm. um, and Having finished it, I then wrote Pandemonium, which was a, a change of genre, really, but there was still a lot of humour in it. But I was reaching that stage where I was thinking, every book I write, I've essentially got to create my own world. Because I, was, I wasn't I was writing the the real world um, in a, a very gritty or, or recognisable way. I was creating these sort of satirical um, platforms for writing. And I thought I'd like to sort of take the pressure off and just write about... Um, the real world for a change and and, um, and I think also in, in my, my sort of personal life at the time uh, my wife's father died suddenly and, and we were dealing with bereavement and so I, I wanted to write a book that addressed that so I ended up writing Where the Bodies Are Buried which is largely about bereavement and about loss and sort of dealing with moving on and there was occasions when I could have put more humour into it but I, I was aware that I didn't want to um detract from the tension I was trying to generate in, in particular scenes um, and, and so some of the kind of throwaway gags that, that I might have put in there I held back uh, and, and that 
I suppose I just stayed with that sort of tone for a few books. Mm-hmm. So in subsequent books, that, I mean, when I brought back Parlobane, um, obviously those books were more serious than the earlier Parlobane novels. There's still there's still a lot of the the irreverent remarks um, mm-hmm. for this from his point of view, but it's there was less um, of the overtly sort of bizarre um, and, and surreal incidents. And it's, I suppose that at that point I was starting to get interested in who he was as a character. He wasn't just a, a sort of cartoonish figure that I would chuck into stories to, to create energy and then narrative. He was someone that I became interested in as if, what if he'd been a real person? How would he be dealing with the fallout from the Legacy Inquiry, for instance? Yeah. And so I ended up writing a trilogy about Parliament when I actually, for the first time, I really cared about him when I was writing about him before. <laughs> he, he wouldn't really have the depth that allowed me to care about him. Um, so I suppose to give a, a very long answer to the question, it has been a, a combination of um, a maturing in my writing and in my outlook. Um, and so I, I think my, the 20, I like to think that the 26 year old me would, would read what I'm writing now and be quite impressed with it. But at the same time, the 51-year-old me is, is kind of envious of... of um, the freedom, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the, the freedom and the, the, just this sense of, of complete liberation of mm. that I had back then. And you, you see you sort of had to create a world with the early Parliament novels and stuff for that satire, the irreverence to hang. But you've also... You know, I think it's fair to say you're largely known for your crime novels, but you have you have um, gone into other genres as well. So, like uh, Places in the Darkness uh, was recently a, a sci-fi. It was a, it was a crime book in there as well, but it was a, very much a sci-fi book as well. Um, so, is that something that I mean? Have you enjoyed dabbling in in these other genres rather than just sticking with crime? Because I know from other crime writers that we've spoken to, they they say that it can be quite difficult to get the freedom really to go out and, mm. and try these different genres. I think there was a point round about, must be back in, in 10 years ago or so, and it suddenly occurred to me that I, I'd say to write the type of books that entertained me. Mm. So when I was a, a teenager, I was reading the likes of Douglas Adams and, and, and James Bond, books, Robert Ludlum and, all sort of like over-the-top escapist um, novels, but I wasn't thinking in terms of genre. And suddenly, after about 10 years into my writing career, it suddenly occurred to me that I'd, I hadn't set out to be a crime writer, but that's where I was. And so I was asked myself, what is it I, I, would, I would write if I had no expectations from, from readers or editors? You know, and and um, I thought, well, I'd like to dabble in, in science fiction, but it, for me, it always comes from the story. And so I, I, with Pandemonium, I'd kind of grown up writing uh, or watching video nasties, as they were known, the sort of mm-hmm. um, early days of home video, which allowed us to, to watch movies that would otherwise have been closed to us because, for one thing, we were all about 12 or 13. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that was Pandemonium was kind of my love letter to those. I always wanted to write something that, that had that energy to it and also that was about, I mean, ironically, at a time when the, the YA genre was really taking off, um, I, was, I was writing something that actually uh, uh, American YA uh, publishers recoiled in horror from it, and I think largely because it was full of teenagers behaving like teenagers actually behave yeah. rather than, you know, certainly how Scottish teenagers <laughs> behave. Um, 
and, and it, it was very liberating just to write something that, that didn't rely on um, as a crime plot, but it's still got a mystery plot to it. You've still got the same, some of the same um, narrative progression, although it did seem to throw a lot of people off of expecting a kind of Scooby-Doo ending, that we didn't have a, a, a sort of rational um, crime-type explanation for what was going on. Um, but I've, I've, I've been very supported by my publishers in that when I've taken these ideas, they've they've said, yeah, go with it. So um, when Bedlam came along, um, it was video game developers mm-hmm. that approached me and the idea of writing it as a novel was just, in a way, it was my, my way of, of developing the themes and developing the story in the way that I knew best. And it turned out that proved very, help, very helpful for them as a, a means of getting funding for the game. Um, and my publishers, fortunately, it's Little Brown, and they have a very well-established science fiction imprint in orbit, so they were kind of set up to, to deal with that. So I've got a different editor for science fiction. And it was actually my editor, uh, Jenny Hill, who suggested writing a crime novel set in space. Mm. Um, and, and I'd had some thoughts down the years about what um, I'd like to write uh, if I wrote a science fiction novel and it wasn't going to be sort of aliens and laser guns science fiction it was, mm-hmm. it was something a wee bit more um, Cr- um, realistic yeah. in that respect mm-hmm. you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of t- I'm trying to avoid saying down to earth because it's literally not <laughs> that it's, you know, but it was this, this space station and I wanted to create a, um, an environment that where I could dictate all the rules. Mm-hmm. And I'd always shied away from writing police procedural novels because other people do it very well and also other people know a lot about police procedure and I don't. So I thought if I want to write a, a police procedural novel, I can write it at a space station where I can tell you what the <laughs> procedures are. I also also wanted to write a, a buddy cop thriller, but I wanted it to be a, a, a female buddy cop thriller. I'm a huge fan all down the years of, of Shane Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Shane Black always kind of likes to write buddy cop stories and go right back to Lethal Weapon, uh, Last Boy Scout, which I've seen about 20 times, I think. And I wanted to write that, but, but Shane Black doesn't write women very well. Mm-hmm. And I wanted a, a, a female perspective, especially, I think, when I was writing about a science fiction story, that can, there was a temptation. I was wary of the danger of making it something very male. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to write this sort of female buddy cop thrill about two very different women who essentially are the antithesis of each other morally and philosophically um, and I had a certain freedom uh, by setting it on this space station that I could I didn't have to worry about what the rules were I didn't have to worry about precedent I could just have this playground in the sky and are you from the sounds of it if you if you don't like writing about police procedure and stuff. I mean, do you spend a lot of time researching things for your novels? Like for Places in Darkness, did you do a lot of research into how the gravity might work on a space station (laughs) and things like that? Yeah, um, weirdly, uh, I mean, I generally don't decide I'm going to write about something and then go and research it. It tends to be the other way around. I've got Mm -hmm. an area that I've been reading about because I'm interested and that sparks an idea for a novel. But with um, Places in the Darkness, I actually... I read lots and lots of stuff um, about early space exploration um, and I read a few um, autobiographies and memoirs by astronauts. Um, even though I was going to be writing about something far more in the future, I wanted to start thinking about what the, some of the practicalities that would 
have have been the the kind of foundations upon which something else would be built. Uh, and I mean, some of them are very interesting, but a lot of them are, are terribly worthy mm-hmm. and, and very very serious. And and, um, and then I read this book uh, called Riding Rockets by Mike Mullane, and he was part of the um, the space shuttle program. But he was an absolute cowboy. You know, he, he just, and he, the, his book's fantastic because it isn't full of the, the same kind of worthy yeah. uh, and, 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 and sort of slightly self-aggrandizing um, attitude. And also, a lot of these guys are the best of the best in so many ways, but he was a, a real adrenaline junkie. He was quite upfront about that. But he's also remarkably uh, candid about how sexist and racist NASA was at the time and how sexist and racist he was mm-hmm. and how and his peers as well and he's just remarkably upfront about this um, and it just made for uh, a very different take you know it's that sort of you're always looking for some wee spark that makes you think about it in a way that you're not expecting to mm-hmm. and I think so actually I, I named a district this sort of red light um really bad behaviour district where everything takes place in places of the darkness is called Malayne Street or Malayne <laughs> as, as a kind of tribute to that but I mean I read obviously there was a lot of stuff about the practicalities of, of, of space and so much of it came down to gravity mm-hmm. the, gra- the lack of gravity is an absolute pain in the arse so <laughs> I, I thought that's going to be a crucial thing let's obviously rather than just have a kind of gizmo to say there's a, a gravity device yeah. I thought about um the sort of uh, centripetal uh, mm-hmm. gravity forces, things like that. And then, obviously, I, I didn't go into like, extreme engineering detail about it. You just take an idea like, well, if you've got a sort of centripetal force to create artificial gravity, what if that force was going to be slightly reduced the closer mm-hmm. you got to the, the centre and therefore the higher you ascend in a building? And I don't know at all whether that would happen. I just know there's an interest in the purposes of constructing a story. But it's good because you have these ideas of, you know, how does gravity work? But then I think what's interesting about places in the darkness is that you you can use them as part of the plot as well. You know, if, if the gravity goes off, then everyone, the scene where everyone gets trapped and someone says, oh, we could be here for, for hours until it gets turned back on again. And it's, and it's going to use as part of the story is to, to slow people down if they're getting chased, etc. So I think that's that. I quite like that aspect of the. Of, you've obviously done the research and stuff, but it wasn't just because so many science novels it's kind of dry background data. Here's here's how gravity works. I'm going to spend two pages outlining what I made up in my head because nobody really cares. Isn't it? No impact on, on on the story. But I think the way you use the gravity or and other scientific devices as part of the actual plot meant it was all you were always interested in in reading about it because it had some kind of impact down the road somewhere. I think that's why I've tended to write um, books about things that I've already got an interest in, because that way you could have you've come up with ideas for the story that require you to deploy the things you've read about. Yeah. And I think what you just just describes that that thing that you you are trying always to avoid, which is for the writers essentially saying, "I've read a lot about this and now you're really read about it." So to me, it's it's. This, this, I suppose, is in what um, Marissa, my wife, and I, uh, we talk about this a lot when we're writing Ambrose Parry, is that there's a wealth of fascinating detail, but you have to justify putting it in there. Yeah. You know, it has to tell you something about the character or it has to drive the plot. 
and that was the same with, with places in the darkness. I mean, I was creating this um, this space station, and, and there's fun for the, the reader as the characters explore it and you learn what the rules are culturally and physically. But you can't just describe that stuff. You know that you have to to tell it to the reader in a way that that forms part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, you touched on Ambrose Parry there, which I was I was going to ask you about as well, because again, those they really bring in that you know you you're you're steeped in i don't know if it's because i live in edinburgh as well but you're you're steeped in that in the 19th century edinburgh and it, it you really feel that throughout the novel but at the same time as Tarek was saying there about the sci-fi stuff it's not something that is dumped on you it's just there in the background and it takes you into the story but you're you're driven forward by the characters in the story rather than being distracted almost by the by the city that you're in um when you when you how how did it come about that you decided to write a book with marissa then um well it, it was that marissa uh, took some some time off for, uh, to to do a, a master's in history um, and it was space, specialised in the history of medicine and she as part of that master's she had to do a dissertation and she, she's someone who had, had no um, background in the arts and humanities at all so she, you know, she was going in fairly cold to um, a postgraduate degree surrounded by people who had just done their undergraduate history degree and so I remember her saying to me you know, in order to she said she was sitting in a seminar and it occurred to her that the only way she was going to look impressive among this group was if somebody had a heart attack. <laughs> and so she, she was, when it came to her dissertation, she thought, I'm going to go into a territory that, that I know a bit about. You know, so she decided to do a dissertation on James Young Simpson because uh, Marissa was an anaesthetist and she, she knew that Simpson was arguably the father of, of anaesthetics as the man who discovered the effects of, of chloroform. And so, when she was researching that, she just kept telling me more and more stories about this guy, you know, not just about his discovery, but even the methods of discovery, the fact that they would all gather around the the dinner table after dinner and just sniff things that they had sort of stolen or or procured from from, uh, the university chemistry department. But that allied to the more sort of warm human elements of the character, that all these stories about how he would go into the old town and deliver babies and not take payment. And, um, and also he's a very mischievous individual. He was constantly um, winding people up. And he, you know, he, he had this role, uh, his house had this role in, in Edinburgh society and that any interesting cultural figure coming through would end up getting dragged around there for dinner. And so all this just seems to be like that. A novel waiting to be written, mm-hmm. but but nobody had beaten us to it, fortunately. So I said we, we should turn this into a novel, and it was an idea that we had not around for a long time, but we realised it would take ages that Marissa would have to commit to it. So she did commit to it, and we decided that's what we were going to do. And it took, I think she did like three years of research to create this wow. huge body of research that we could draw upon. Um, I remember saying it's going to take several years to write the first book, but because we've got this big body of research, it won't be the case subsequently. Um, but it was also crucial that she wasn't going to just present me with some massive body of research and say, right, I've done this and write a novel. Uh, it required her to come up with a, really this of the story and the characters because 
as an anaesthetist, her perspective on this was very different and very informed. She could see where the drama lies, that someone else could look at the same material and not see the stories that she saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we decided we'd work on this together, and it took us a long time to work out. I think initially we thought, do you try and come up with a novel that's based on Simpson's life? And then his life was, it was so kind of packed with, with incident and detail and a lot of tragedy. And we thought, that's hard to, to render as a novel. Um, and so it evolved into the idea of a novel that, that he was central to, but not the protagonist. And we kind of took our cue from the West Wing. We were both big fans of the West Wing. And the, the, the dynamic there is that Bartlett is at the centre of it all, but he's not the protagonist of the West Wing. It's about the people that are around him. So Marissa came up with the idea of a, an apprentice to be the protagonist because that's a reason for you to explain the medicine of the time to to the reader. And also then because it was very much a male world, but a world of obstetrics, you've got these men um, dictating this world of obstetrics and, and she thought we need a, a woman's perspective on this. And also the class issue is very important. Simpson was someone who'd come from humble beginnings to, to be very esteemed, but he, he kind of transcended um, different levels of, of Edinburgh society. So we wanted to look at the, the kind of class implications and how a, a working class woman would be completely restricted in all her opportunities in terms of education and employment. So it was an idea that just evolved over quite some time and then took a couple of false starts and eventually we worked out what we wanted to do with it. What's the what's the writing process like when you write these books? Because obviously you're you're writing it together, but you know, does, does someone take a obviously does it sound like someone takes a role of the world building and someone takes a role of the dialogue, or do you kind of do you know, pass the chapter back kind of back and forth? How does that work? Um, it, well, it's been different for each book. We're working on the third one just now, and it, it's a constantly evolving process. Um, initially, Marissa wrote a lot of the sort of medical chapters in the first book. And then I reworked them with regards to the plot that we were coming up with. Um, but she wrote most of the chapters from Sarah's point of view. And I was not so much writing the ones from Sarah's point of view as, as revising um, the, the medical scenes because only she could write these medical scenes because she knows where the where the sort of tension and conflict would lie in these scenes. But what we would do is we would write the um, chapters and, and generally just swap them over and rewrite each other's material um, and what I've noticed in the as it's going on is we've kind of essentially started ventriloquizing each other <laughs> we're, we're, you can tell we're both trying to write if I'm trying to write it's I'm thinking how would Marissa write this and yeah. she's trying to do the same uh, so it, it's becoming I mean you can always you can probably tell uh, in the early stages um, you'd be able to tell who'd been writing what but once we've swapped it over for a while um, it gets more and more um, blurred and it gets to say these times you can't remember who wrote it you know I'll say I remember you wrote that line or yeah that was your, she'll say, no, that was your line and, and so it, it's it's something that does keep evolving you know that with each book it's slightly different with the one we're working on just now while I was writing the book I've just finished she was working on this novel so there was a lot more in the way of sort of plot and this sort of sleuthing element than, than before. And now I've come on board and, as she always puts it, messed it all up by uh, <laughs> sort of making the plot a, a bit more complex and t- changing a few things. And so we're, we're now working on the writing side of it. But again, we're, um, we've divided the labour in that 
I'm writing certain chapters, she's writing others, and then we're, what we'll have to do is, is kind of catch up with each other. We've done this before, and you realise you're both writing a different part of it, and you have to kind of see, because in terms of the chronology, one of you might be getting ahead of the other. Mm-hmm. You have to go back and check that everybody knows what they need to know and that you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the timelines aren't getting confused. I, I, I heard you say as well um, that the, the the process of writing it with her has also sort of dripped through into you writing your solo books as well. Is is that right? Like with Fallen Angel, I think you said that you discussed that and that came up with the plot almost in conjunction with Marissa for that as well. Yeah, um, I think that I'd learned a lot from just the process of when I would come up with plot ideas for um, Ambrose Parry, when I tried to explain them to Marissa, stuff that sounded really well-rounded, well-formed in my head, she'd just be sort of staring blankly at me. And it's, that's when it became clear that it's when you try and explain it to someone else, that's when it becomes apparent to you that you've got steps missing in your logic. Yeah. Uh, and so that, as an exercise, I'd learned to... to uh, as, as a result of that, when I was coming up with a plot for Fallen Angel, we would kind of thrash it out between us and it meant that I knew a lot more about the plot and the characters before I started the actual writing than I think that I'd ever done with a novel before. Uh, so yeah, we did work on that fairly in depth. So, I mean, I, I went off and then wrote the novel myself. She stepped away from it at that point. But, um, and it was the same with the, the book I just finished when I was trying to kind of focus on, on a, a whole suite of ideas and Again, we would just sit down and, and chat about it, knock it back and forth, and sh- that helped to to bring a, a fairly unfocused um, kind of miasma of, of ideas into something a little bit tighter. And is that is that something that you that is new after the Ambrose Parry thing? Did you used to sort of keep the writing to yourself more before that, and then sure once it was done, kind of a thing? Yeah, most of the time um, I would. I would just go off on my own and work on a, on a, a book and she would only read it when it was finished. That, but that, that actually, that wasn't the case right at the beginning. Um, with Quite Ugly One Morning, for instance, the plot was her idea. Right. So she'd been, she was a wee bit reluctant to take credit for it at the time because she was working as a doctor in Edinburgh and a, a, a plot involving the doctor killing off all the patients to clean <laughs> the beds wasn't something she wanted to be too readily associated with. Um, but obviously there was things like when I right about that time I would I would just plow on with these ideas and see where they took me but I'd eventually um, run out of road and get really confused and then the two of us would go and talk about the, the, the plot and she would help me work it out so like the end of um, not the end of the world she was that was all her idea how we, the, that plot resolved itself and similarly one fine day in the middle of the night but then we got to busy on other things and I started just writing the books without so much recourse to, to Marissa but then by the time I was writing Black Widow so much of that came from stories she had told me about herself and her colleagues as, as women in medicine so um, that I suppose preceded Ambrose Parry for her start to be involved more closely again with them uh, I mean obviously I'd ask her stuff just for technical reasons like I'd most infamously asking her about could you abseil down human intestines if you want to do that in a pinch uh, for, for being my enemy. She did actually go and ask a, a, 
a bowser jumping. <laughs> <laughs> said, yeah, they, they, they probably would be, they would be strong enough, make it a bit stretchy, and also pointed out that as you slid down, you'd be squeezing it, so you'd be firing out the content. put that in. And, and when it comes to, to working out the plot for these books, you know, right back to the very start, are you someone who does like to sit down and plot these things out before you really put pen to paper, or do you kind of run with it and just see what happens? Um, it's been both at different times. In the early days, I would I would just see where the ideas took me, although I, I would know what the... In terms of plot, I'd know what the, the villain was up to, you know, what was ultimately to be revealed. Um, but I wouldn't know how I was going to get there. And f- with, with a book like, um, for instance, All Fun and Games Till Somebody Loses an Eye, it was all about the concept and taking this um, grandmother who's from a fairly normal suburban environment and putting her in this world of espionage. That just kind of got bigger and bigger and longer and longer because there were so many things I could do with the situation. Um, so it was less plot driven and there was a point at which I thought right, I do need to try and control this and bring it back to, to a, a head um, but some novels I would need to know a lot before I started um, Sacred Art of Stealing because it's about stage magic and it is all ultimately about illusion uh, one of the, the keys to stage magic they say is you don't take the stage until all the pieces are in place so that's kind of what I had to know a lot about what was going to happen in that book before I wrote page one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, there's a line in the book where someone says, you won't know anything until you know everything. So that's kind of it. And that, that's certainly where with certain types of book, when a book like Black Widow, I had to know mm-hmm. huge amounts of that because I knew that it was all going to, a lot of it was going to be predicated on a, a, on a twist. So... I don't like a twist that's just new information. I think a, a good twist changes the meaning of everything that you've yeah. already encountered. So to do that, you have to be aware of what that twist is. And on every page, you have to think, how is this going to affect uh, the reader's perception if they go back and read it again, for instance, or you know, how does it change the information? So some novels, you need to know everything before you write page one, and other novels, you can just think, well, let's see where it goes. Mm-hmm. And are you someone that does... Like, do you do a lot of drafts, or uh, do you revise sort of assiduously as you're as you're going along? Um, yeah, I think I do tend to think about it and edit as I go. And the longer I work with an editor, the more I start to anticipate what the editor's going to tell right. me to change. Okay. So, rather than just submit it and hope for the best, you know, there's times when I think um, I already know my editor's going to say that needs to be revised and that needs to go or that needs to be changed to you know, something a bit more speedy or pacey. You know? So rather than wait, I just tend to try and do that on the, on the hoof. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's, there's always going to be subsequent drafts, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who just uh, rattles it out and then tries to correct it in the yes. second draft. Uh-huh. But I tend to... F- fairly um, polished first draft you know I'm, I'm not going to submit it until I'm, I'm pretty happy with it I, I was just going to ask um, with the impact of it or whether there has been any impact of of what's going on at the moment with the lockdown and things like that we've spoken to some writers that have said that they've actually found it hard to hard to 
be creative and concentrate with all of this going on, whereas others seem to have been able to sort of cocoon themselves and, and drive things forward. So we just wondered how you were finding it. Well, I was fortunate in that by the time lockdown started, but we essentially, because Marissa is a doctor and she was tearing her hair out that they weren't locking down mm-hmm. weeks before, um, we essentially locked down ourselves a week or so before the official lockdown. And at that point, I was in the kind of closing straits of, of a book. So I think the first three or four weeks of lockdown was just me working on that book. And that was very distracting. You know, you, you can just lose yourself and forget about everything else because you're at that stage of a novel, it's so much easier to concentrate on it. You know, you're, you're quite um, consumed by it. The start of a novel is a very different thing. Uh, and so I had normally I'd have the, the luxury of a few months between projects, but um, we had uh, a sort of deadline that for the Ambrose Parry, but we, we, we both knew we were always going to have to kind of press on with it quite quickly. So I didn't really get much of... Everyone was talking about filling their days or trying to fill their days, watching Netflix, playing video yeah. games, whatever. I was just really having to go straight into this Ambrose Parry book, but it was it was more about getting my head around the, the story and the themes, um, which involved a lot of using my daily walk allocation you know, to, to go and, and, and think about it. Um, but it's it's not the most conducive time. I mean, it's, as a writer, you're fortunate that you don't have to, to go to a specific place to do your job, and, and that that's all easier than it could have been if you were doing some other job. But Marissa put it well. She said that the, they say it's, it's like it's like the wolves are circling, you know, and you know you. you they're not there yet, but yeah. it's hard to concentrate and take your eye off yeah. the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's not entirely conducive, but at the same time, there's a, a we're both very aware that the way to get through this and to have a sense of purpose you know, is to be getting on with a story. It, to, if you're working on a book, it, it helps give some sort of shape to the week mm-hmm. and to, to the time you're spending. So um, it took quite a few weeks of, of getting the, the storyline mapped out. Uh, but now that it has, we are building up a bit of momentum about what we're doing. And um, I, I don't think things will change much now, because even though thing, certain restrictions are going to be lifted, for us, you know, we're not really be, going to be going anywhere, uh, so it will just be much the same. It will be going for walks to think about the story and then sitting at the computer and writing it. Yeah. But I, I'm sort of oscillating between, I, I'm fortunate very fortunate that I was going into lockdown in that latter stage of a book, but even more fortunate that the after that, rather than be presented with a blank page and no idea what the next book was going to be, Marissa had spent the previous six months working on research and themes and ideas in the story. So it was more a question of taking that and developing it. Um, so I, I didn't have to face the creative challenge of trying to come up with something new and interesting and inspiring yeah. in the midst of lockdown. Yeah. And I had to ask that you're obviously you're part of the fun loving crime writers band with a whole bunch of other famous writers, and you've, you've played a lot of book festivals and conventions. And is that something that we? I mean, obviously, a site because it's something you would recommend people go to. 
obviously, <laughs> of course. But is it something you'd always recommend people go to for that kind of it's a fun atmosphere? You're mingling with authors in a different format, perhaps. You're chatting with people. You're getting advice, insights, and stuff. Oh, it's. I mean, book festivals are the thing that I'm missing the most. Marissa and I are both saying we. we this is the one thing that that we really are, are feeling, um, and it's the time to, to meet up with old friends and um, talk to readers, compare notes with your your peers, your colleagues. Uh, but yeah, the fun loving crime writers has been the that's all the things that are good about a book festival. Work, I'm sort of distilled into that, you know, the, the chance to see. I suppose from the reader's point of view is to see writers in a very different context. Yeah. Yeah. But for us, it's just the best fun. I mean, it's, it's just been the best perk of this job that I've ever had. Um, it's, and it was really quite, it was quite heartbreaking. And it would just get, all through lockdown, get a, an alert on my phone from the calendar to tell me where I was meant to be. Because we, we had a whole load of gigs lined up for the, during the, the spring this yeah. year. Um, and we were meant to be curating a day at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, where we were going to have various musicians who would be sort of interviewed by us and then try and we were going to put us up in a grand crossover thing that hadn't quite been nailed down, but we had some great plans for it. But well, it's next year, hopefully. Another casualty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was the last film you saw? Uh, oh. Last night we watched Ladies in Black, directed by Bruce Beresford. It was on Netflix. It was a very strange experience. Um, (laughs) And we talked about it this morning. It's about a 1959 Australia, Sydney department store. And it's kind of a gentle drama about, um, I suppose, the positives of immigration. But it it was kind of twee. And we were trying to work out why it didn't quite feel right. It was like watching... A film that had the aesthetic and feel and, and some visuals of a a comedy, but no jokes. <laughs> um, so it, it, it just didn't didn't quite click. Yeah, oh. <laughs> a recommendation right there for. And <laughs> uh, um, what, what was the last book you read, Chris? Uh, God, I'm trying to think now. I've just gone completely blank because I've been. I read quite a few, quite a few during lockdown, um, but I never. I honestly can't remember when you've asked me that. <laughs> it's a long time. Uh, I'll tell you the last one that's of... Stretches into one long day. That is it. And, and also it's because I, I, I tend not to write fiction, uh, read fiction when I'm writing fiction, so I'm sort of disengaged from fiction um, uh, a few weeks ago. But uh, I think when I read, read a lot of very striking books during that brief period. <laughs> so And the, the one that leaps out, just thinking there was... Uh, now We Shall Be Entirely Free by Andrew Miller, which yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, I've heard a very good yeah, That might have been the last one I read, but I, I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, last TV show you watched? Uh, I think we finished Better Call Saul, but I, I'm sure we've watched something else since. We've been, we've been watching lots of movies of late mm-hmm. somehow, so I'm trying to think what it was we must have finished. I can't go completely blank. <laughs> no, fair enough. 
No, yeah. I think it's we're, we're kind of similar. We've been watching a lot of TV and film and stuff, and I'm I find it's really bad. Is that I look back and I'm like, what was the last? I can remember the show I watched like two shows ago, but for some reason, I, I get the same thing when I go go to the cinema and you when you come on, you say, well, what trailers did we get before the film started? And we yeah. just saw three or four trailers, and at the time you were like, oh, that looked really good, and you cannot remember for the life of you what trailers you got. You know, it's weird. I think I've like, I know what, what stuck with me that was, that was really good was Unorthodox. Oh, yeah, that's meant to be amazing. That was, yeah, yeah. That was excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, the very final thing we always end the podcast in, on is a either or uh, one or the other question. So just a very quick fire first thing that comes to your head uh, Rebus or Laidlaw? Laidlaw. Okay. Um, TV or cinema? I'm from Glasgow. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, TV or cinema? Cinema. Um, real book or ebook? Real book. And does anybody ever say ebook? No, I don't know what I would like. I have to say, I'm a ebook fan, but um, most people are definitely real book. I th- although there's a lot of people that, are, that do my choice, which is like to have a real book, but also have it on ebook if you're if you're travelling or something like that. <laughs> the combination. Um, last one. Uh, do you prefer a fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Right now, a fancy restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another non ebook fan yeah no you you're not say, you're not doing very like well in that solo. <laughs> no, I'm, not. I'm pretty sure i'm the only person who seems to be the planet who enjoys an ebook over a real book i don't get the argument of this people seem to have this argument about the smell of a book oh yeah there's i love of, i love the smell of a new book there's That's... a lot of perverts out there Mark, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> uh, like i said though i do i do i'm a bit of a cheat because i, I love ebooks as well because it's so convenient but you know we all like to have a, the smell of a new book, Derek, but also <laughs> also to have a nice shelf of, of your favourite books. Yeah, is I do enjoy thing. the shelf. I have to say yeah. that everyone likes to have a, a library of their of their books now. Yeah. That that is the one the one problem is having it on your book on your Kindle, I think, is not being able to see it. Yeah. There, there is a physical aspect which I do get I do get, but yeah. yeah. Hate that smell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I really enjoyed that chat with Chris. Uh, I thought it was mm-hmm. really interesting just hearing how he he's sort of developed as a writer as well over that period you know his first books were definitely much more satirical and irreverent um, and yeah. they're great books but his later ones they still have the sort of certain satirical or irreverent bits but there's a much more serious story overall perhaps is is what yeah, I would say yeah it's it's definitely that kind of you can see can't you know that those those first books? A twenty-six-year-old person compared to someone in the thirties. Yeah, you can see the change in that, and I yeah. think that's probably quite good for for an an, an audience who grows with that person mm-hmm. whose taste change and matures mm-hmm. to go. It's uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. Yeah, because definitely as well, I would say that there is. You can still tell it's, it's Chris Brookmeyer from book yeah. one to to his latest book, but th- there's a development there that that's really interesting to read as well. And I also thought it was interesting what he was saying about twists. You know, I, I agree entirely that the best twists are the ones that have been laid throughout the novel and shock yeah. you when you get there and suddenly it all falls into place in your own head rather than yeah. some sort of deus ex machina piece of information being put in at the end 
to cause yeah, a totally. twist. I think, I think we've all seen films or read books where a, a twist comes and, yeah, it's shocking and you don't see it coming, uh, but there's no way to see it coming. And I think the best twists are the ones where you think, oh, of course, why didn't I see that when that was a clue which I totally missed or you viewed the film in a, or the book in a different light mm-hmm. knowing the ending. I think those are the best. And it's hard to do because you need to do yeah. the groundwork. But yeah, um, but yeah if, if, if it's done right, it absolutely is much, much more satisfying. Yeah. Well, thanks again to Chris for taking the time to speak to us. As I say, we really enjoyed that chat. And uh, if you've not read any of his books, I would highly recommend picking up pretty much any of them, <laughs> to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, whether you're a crime fan they're or a sci-fi fan. They're all great, the, all the ones that I've read. Um, who's on next week's podcast? Next week we have Sheila O'Flanagan, who is an international best-selling author. She's written oh, scores and scores of books in mm-hmm. her in her career. Uh, and they've always they've got really strong female uh, characters, really good relationship themes running mm-hmm. through them. They're, they're really good, good reads. And uh, she was a really great chat. She was super nice. Lots of really good advice for people. Yeah, and we chat, we chat about you know how she broke into the industry as usual, and uh, about writing why it's important for her to write those types of books with a strong female voice. Um, and we chat about her latest book, which is The Women Who Ran Away, which is out soon. So I uh, hope you tune in for that episode. Uh, before we go, just wanted to remind you that we do have a competition running at the moment for uh, a couple of signed books from last week's guest, Thomas Welsh. Uh, we've got two signed copies of Anna Undreaming, and also you get a copy of our Page One Notebook, uh, which you heard an advert for earlier on in the podcast. It's a writer's notebook divided into sections to try and help you plan your story. But... Uh, Hope you all have a great week and we'll see you next week. See you then.